Let's open in prayer. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the privilege we have. We know that the Word has come down to us through men who have given their lives for it. Men have been burnt at the stake just for the endeavor of translating the Scripture into our languages and trying to preserve the Word for us. And we're thankful that You and Your sovereignty and Your providence, You have kept the Word of God pure down through the ages and have brought it to us today in our language. In fact, we have so many translations of the Bible in our language, it's hard to keep up with them. We have bookshelves filled with Bibles, many of them collecting dust. And Lord, may it never be that we would neglect the Word that You've given to us, the Word that men have given their lives to help preserve for us. We thank You for Your truth. We thank You for the passage we just read. The necessity of laying aside our liberties to avoid causing an unnecessary stumbling block to others. Lord, that we would do all things for the sake of the Gospel, become slaves to all men. What a radical thought that we would make ourselves slaves to all. Jesus Himself said that He who is great in the kingdom makes Himself slave of all, servant of all. That we would do that, Father. We would lay aside our non-essential liberties that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God that we might not be an offense to Your people, or might not cause an unnecessary stumbling block for the Gospel. That we would do nothing that would dishonor the Gospel, nothing that would dishonor our Savior, nothing that would dishonor the truth, but that we would be a people who live lives that commend the truth, that adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, and that beautify the Gospel. May we let our light shine before men and be the light and salt of the earth. May You be pleased to use us to bring people into Your kingdom. I pray that we would uh, be a people who discipline ourselves, discipline our bodies, make it our slaves, and even me as the pastor of this wonderful flock, wonderful congregation, that I would not box without aim or run without aim, but that I would discipline my body, Lord, and live out the Word for the flock and not be disqualified myself after having preached the Word. That we would not be a people who tear down with our lives what we build up with our mouths, but that our walk would be consistent with our speech and that You would be glorified in our lives. Lord, thank You for the truth we've heard already, the singing we've been able to engage in already, and now as we open the Scripture and seek to feast upon Your truth, we pray for wisdom, we pray for illumination and understanding, and that our eyes would be open to behold the glory of the triune God in the Scripture. We pray these things in the name of Your Son. Amen. Alright, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me again to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And this morning we're going to finish uh, looking at the passage that we briefly began to look at last time, and that is verses 18 to 23. First John chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. I told you last time that uh, this text really begins cycle 2 of the threefold test that John presents over and over again by which we can come to have assurance of our salvation. John has really three things to say. He's going to say them for five chapters nonstop. We've already gotten the message. We're going to keep getting it more and more. I told you the book is cyclical. It's almost as if John draws in circles and each time he just gets deeper and deeper or expands wider and wider in these concepts and ideas. And the threefold test is the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. Doctrinal test, moral test, and the social test. The true Christian believes the truth, obeys the truth, and loves 
in truth. That is the litmus test of a true believer. And John has already presented all of those tests in 1.1 through 2.17. That was cycle 1. He started in the first four verses by presenting the doctrinal test, the Christological test, by asserting that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus is what was from the beginning, and He was what was manifested to us. He is the God-man. And all true Christians believe that truth. Fundamentally, to be a Christian is to believe in the right Jesus. To be a Christian is to believe the truth about Christ. But then John moved to the moral and the social test, and he really gives these tests together because they go together. And in verse 5 all the way into chapter 2, verse 17, he made several statements. He stated that the true Christian doesn't walk in the darkness, but he walks in the light. He doesn't live in sin, he lives in righteousness. He doesn't walk in disobedience, but obedience. He doesn't love the world, but he does love the brethren. Those are the tests of a true believer. But now starting in verse 18 of chapter 2, John begins to recycle through these tests once again, and yet again he begins with the doctrinal test. And as he does so, he begins to expose what we call Antichrist. Antichrist. Let's read this passage together again. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming... Even now, many antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. The key word there, as you already know, is the word Antichrist, Antichristos. Its basic meaning is against Christ or opposed to Christ. It could also refer to someone who seeks to replace Christ, a substitute Christ. So so an antichrist is anyone who's either in opposition to the true Christ or someone who seeks to supplant the true Christ, who comes in His name claiming to be the Messiah, though He is not, a false Messiah. That's John's theme. John is focused on antichrist. And we know that the world of Christendom is obsessed with that idea, right? The idea of antichrist. Everyone is always trying to figure out who the Antichrist is, when he's going to appear. I mean, there's just this consumption with the Antichrist. Last time I told you that even people who don't read the Bible or even believe the Christian faith are obsessed with the book of Revelation and the idea of end times and last days and these various apocalyptic concepts. The people are always trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. And They've identified many figures throughout history, such as presidents and national leaders and various popes, and said maybe this is the Antichrist. Maybe he's it. Uh, Now today it's Joe Biden, used to be Trump, and who knows who's next. Everybody is just picking out who the Antichrist is. But John's focus in this passage is less on who the final Antichrist is and more on the many Antichrist, plural, that already exist and presently surround us. I told you last time, The word Antichrist, despite its popularity in Christendom, 
It's only used five times in the New Testament. Five times in the New Testament. All five times in John's epistle. And it's only used one time, I'm convinced, with reference to the final Antichrist. Only one time. It's used five times. It's used three times here in our text in verses 18 to 23. It's used once in 1 John chapter 4, verse, 7, uh, verse 3. And then it's used again in 2 John verse 7. It's used in the plural twice here in the singular once. It refers both to the final Antichrist to come, but also to the many Antichrists that already exist and already surround us. You don't need to get on Google and figure out who the next anti- who the Antichrist is, because John's going to tell us that there's already many around us. In fact, we are around them every week at work and at school and at the post office and all over the place, because Antichrist are everywhere. Just as in John's day, so it is in our day. There exists a plethora of people who are in opposition to Jesus Christ. And John's going to tell us that anyone who's in opposition to Christ is an antichrist. In reality, there's only two kinds of people in the world. There are Christians and antichrist. Christians and antichrist. Again, what did Jesus say? You're either for me or against me. You're either for me or opposed to me. If you're not a Christian, you're not on the team. You're outside of the kingdom, you're under the wrath of God, you're an enemy of God, and you are opposed to the only one who can save you from your sins, namely, Jesus Christ. So they are all around us, practically on every corner. The question then is, how do we know who they are? It's essential that we do that. It's essential that we know who an Antichrist is and how to overcome them. But how do we do that? How do we identify them and defeat them? How do we recognize them and overcome them? John's going to help us do that in our passage by presenting four features of Antichrist. Four features. He presents the timing of Antichrist, the defection of Antichrist, the help against Antichrist, and finally, the definition of Antichrist. The timing, the defection, the help against, and the definition of Antichrist. We looked at the first of those last time. We spent an entire hour on verse 18 and kind of piqued your curiosity a bit with the talk of the final Antichrist. I look again at verse 18. Verse 18. John says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. So John began there with a term of endearment, a term of love, children, out of his deep pastoral shepherding love for his flock, he warns them of the deception of these anti-Christ. And I told you that any pastor, any shepherd who loves his flock is going to do the same. He's going to warn his people about false teaching. Beware of any preacher, any pastor who never rebukes false teachers, never exposes error. Paul told Titus that the pastor has to be sound in doctrine so that he can exhort his sound doctrine, and refute those who contradict. Calvin said the pastor has to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep, the other for calling off wolves. That is the twofold duty of the pastor, the shepherd. John, out of his deep love for his flock, warns them. And he says, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. We're consumed with that idea, right? The end times. I think we're living in the last days, people say. John says, yes, yes. In fact, we have been for 2,000 years. The end times began a long time ago. The last days began a long time ago. The eschaton is already here. 
Now we looked at a few passages last time that affirmed that the last days began in one sense at Pentecost with the pouring out of the Spirit and even more so with the first coming of Christ. The last days is a reference to the time in between the first and second coming. That whole period of time, no matter how long it is, is a reference to the last days. So the eschaton, the end times, have been inaugurated, but they've yet to be consummated. So John says, we're in the last days. The last days are messianic days. Then he says, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. You've heard that Antichrist is coming. They heard that from probably John, the Old Testament, the other apostles, who heard that from Jesus Himself. There is a singular, final Antichrist to come. We looked at a lot of information last or two weeks ago on the Antichrist. We looked at a, several passages in the Old Testament, a few in the New Testament, and we found out there is a man of lawlessness to come. A man of lawlessness, a ruler from Rome who's different than all the rest, who has no desire for women, no desire for the gods of his fathers, but takes his place in the temple of God and even claims to be God. And I identified that man of lawlessness, that Antichrist, as the Pope of Rome. The papacy, I'm convinced, is the Antichrist. I'm convinced that Antichrist, the Antichrist, is an office, and every Pope holds that office so that every Pope is the Antichrist. That would mean Pope Francis is the Antichrist, the Pope who preceded him is the Antichrist, the Pope that comes after him is the Antichrist, because this ruler from Rome, different than the rest, because he's religious, not primarily civil, who is a revived Roman Empire, against God, not concerned with marriage, right? Pope's not supposed to be married, not concerned with the gods of his fathers, the Pope got rid of the pantheon of gods, and instead replaced it, of course, with his own idols. The Pope, I'm convinced, is the Antichrist. There will be a final expression of this Antichrist and the final Pope, I think, and Christ will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and the appearance of his coming. And we wait for that day with anticipation. But John's focus here is not primarily on the Antichrist to come, but again on the many that already exist today. He says, just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. They already exist. They're already around you. You need to be on the lookout for Antichrist now. Right now. They exist in the last hour. That's the timing of Antichrist. But now, for this morning, we'll conclude our study of this passage by considering the last three features of Antichrist. And whereas our primary focus last time was the final Antichrist, now we'll focus on the mini Antichrist. So let's begin this morning by considering the second feature of Antichrist, and that is their defection. The defection of Antichrist. Look at verse 19. Verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. John says they went out from us. Who is they? Who is they? The Antichrist. The deceivers. The false teachers. Those seeking to deny the truth. They went out from us. That is to say, they began in the church. They started off in the church professing the truth. They were with us. Only to at a later time leave the faith, depart from the church, and defect from Christ. They started off 
with us. That means that we not only have to look out for Antichrist in the world, but even more dangerously, we have to look out for Antichrist in the church. In the church. Even in good evangelical churches. By the way, that's why churches should practice church discipline. That's why churches should have membership processes. We want to make sure we're knowing the people that are in the church. I don't want someone to sneak in here one day with destructive heresy, and then all of a sudden, six months later, half the congregation is like, yeah, I think this guy's right. right? I care too much for you for that. As a church, we care too much about the truth for that. We want to hold fast to the truth. And so as a church, we have to be look out even for false teachers and antichrist in the church. So John says they went out from us. Even in the visible church. Many years prior to the writing of 1 John, Paul predicted this, by the way. He predicted this. You see, remember John is writing from Ephesus to the churches of Asia Minor, which is where Ephesus was located. It's one of the churches there. And Paul planted that church on his second missionary journey. And on his third missionary journey, he spent three years there laboring for the gospel. You can read about that in Acts chapter 19 if you'd like. But in Acts chapter 20, Paul calls the pastors, the elders of Ephesus to him, and he gives them this warning. Listen to what he says in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And watch this. And from among your own selves, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So Paul predicted that savage wolves false teachers would come and they would arise even from within their own ranks. That false teachers and heretics would arise in the church, even perhaps within the eldership of the church, and would lead many astray. Now, renouncing their profession going back to the world. That's apostasy, defection, desertion, a falling away, a, a betrayal of your initial profession, a betrayal of Christ, a turning away from the Savior. What's worse than that? Those who leave the truth, who leave the Savior, and go back to the world and its deceptions like a dog returning to its vomit. That's exactly what the false teachers at Asia Minor had done. Demas was one such apostate. We know of him. 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says, Demas deserted me, having loved the present world. Judas did the same thing. He betrayed the Son of God with a kiss. Because he loved the treasures of the world more than he loved the treasure of the Son of God. That's what Antichrists do. That's what they had done in Asia Minor. They started off well. They seemed to be the real deal. They said, yes, we believe in Christ. We're Christians. And then they deceived people and left the church. They were secessionists. Head or heretics who left the church and started their own movement. So we have to look out for Antichrist even in the church. And Scripture is constantly sounding that warning. You know, it wouldn't be so dangerous if it was just the Muslims and the Hindus and the Buddhists who denied Christ. But when it's Christians that redefine Him, repackage Him, resell Him, and bring Him in in a different character and under a different guise. Listen 
to what Jude said. Jude predicted this as well. Jude chapter 1, verse 4. He said, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They crept in unnoticed. They denied Christ. They pervert grace. And they deceive the faithful and take them with them. These antichrists begin in the church. Peter warned about them as well in his second epistle. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, that is, in the church, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. That's the dangerous one. The ones that sneak in unnoticed. Who secretly introduce destructive heresies. Who deny Christ, deceive people, and leave the church. But they only leave after the damage is done. They only leave after many are deceived and the church is distraught by the heretics. That's what Peter said would happen. He said, many will follow after their sensuality and because of them the way of truth will be maligned and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. They're going to deceive people, but in the end, they're going to be damned. They're going to be brought under divine judgment. All who deviate from the truth and deceive others will be brought under condemnation. This is apostasy. Jesus spoke about this kind of apostasy. Matthew chapter 13, He gave a parable that we know of as the parable of the soils. Glorious parable. Now, the parable basically summarizes the various responses to the Gospel. When we go to the world and we present the Gospel, there's only a few ways people can respond, ultimately. Some of them reject the Gospel outrightly. They laugh at us, they scoff at us, and say, no, we're Muslims, or we're atheists, or you're an idiot. But then others profess faith in the Gospel, they go to church, they get baptized, but they never bear fruit, proving themselves to not be true and genuine disciples. But then you have another kind of response. Jesus mentions it in Matthew 13, starting in verse 20. He says, "...the one on whom seed was sown in the rocky places, this is the man who hears the Word and immediately receives it with joy." He hears the Gospel and says, yes, I believe it. I love this. I'm a Christian. Yet he has no firm root in himself. The Gospel doesn't take root in his heart. But is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the Word, immediately he falls away. That's the temporal convert. The false convert. The defector. The apostate. The one who hears the Gospel, professes faith in the Gospel, only to later leave the church and leave the truth. That's what people do in our day. That's what the Antichrist did in John's day. They go back to the world. But why do they do that? Why do they, why do they go out from us? Why do they leave? Verse 19 in chapter 2 answers that. He says, They went out from us, but, or you could say because, they were not really of us. They went out from us because they were not really of us. They departed from the faith. They left the church. They left the truth. They left Christ. They apostatized because they were never genuine believers to begin with. They were never truly saved to begin with. Those who leave the truth demonstrate they were never saved in the first place. They were false converts. 
unregenerate hypocrites whose defection demonstrated their unbelief. John MacArthur says the departure of people from the truth in the church is their unmasking. It's as if you've taken your mask off now. You've left the church and revealed what was really underneath the whole time. You were always a wolf. Always a wolf in sheep's clothing, masquerading yourself as a believer when in reality you never were. This is a person who never had faith. A person who had superficial faith. Had a superficial connection with Jesus only to leave Him because He never really loved Him. How do we know they were never saved? For if they had been of us, John says, they would have remained with us. That's what true believers do. True believers do not betray Christ. Do they fall? Of course. Do they at times deny Him? Peter did. But do they totally and finally leave Him and apostatize? No. If they were of us, John says they would have remained with us. If they were true believers, if they were truly numbered among the elect, truly belonged to the church of God, they never would have left to begin with. You see, you can be a part of the local church without being a part of the universal church. You can be a part of the visible church without being a part of the invisible church. You can make a profession of Christ without actually possessing Christ. And that's what these heretics had done. They never really knew Him. The true believers demonstrate the validity of their faith by their perseverance. This gets to the doctrine of eternal security, or the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, better yet, the preservation of the saints. That is to say, true Christians cannot lose their salvation because they are kept by the sovereign grace of God. God upholds them and God preserves them. Those in the Father has chosen for salvation, those for whom Christ has given His life, those in the Spirit of God has effectually wrought a new principle of life within them will never fall away. They are kept by God. In Mark 13, 13, Jesus said, He who endures to the end is the one that will be saved. True believers, those truly saved, show it by endurance. In John chapter 10, Jesus made it perfectly clear that believers are eternally secure. Listen to what He said, starting in verse 27. He says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. That's a wonderful promise, isn't it? Do you know why your salvation is secure if you're a Christian? It's not secure because you're so smart. It's not secure because you're so faithful. And it's not secure because you're just so spiritually strong. If If you're a Christian, your salvation is secure because you're held in the safe hand of the Savior. That's why. Christ upholds you. Who do you want to be in control of your salvation? You or God? I mean, if we were in control, I mean, there's weeks we just want to up and leave, up and quit. But God keeps us. Despite the wickedness of our heart and the malice of Satan and the influence of the world, God in His sovereign mercy sustains us. He upholds us. He says, I give my sheep eternal life. They will never perish. By definition, if you have eternal life, you can't perish. Because eternal life is eternal. It lasts forever. And if you perish, you obviously never had eternal life. Those whom Christ saves have eternal life and they never perish. Romans 8 says there's no created thing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Philippians 1.6, Paul said, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. If God began a work of salvation in you, He will not leave it incomplete. He will bring it to its intended goal. Namely, glorification. Final salvation. Jude 1.1 says that we are kept by or for Jesus Christ. We are kept. Verse 24 says that the God is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. God's able to do that. God will do that if you belong to Christ. 1 Peter 1.5 says we are protected by God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God protects us. God defends us. Our inheritance is stored up in heaven, undefiled, will not fade away. It is absolutely certain because we are held in the hand of God. Psalm 37.28 says, The Lord loves justice and does not forsake His godly ones. They are preserved forever. Amazing. God holds you forever. Salvation doesn't depend on your faithfulness. It depends on God's faithfulness. Not your effort, God's grace. Not your work, God's mercy. That's the source of our salvation. Jeremiah 32.40 is another promise. God affirms this doctrine. He says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. So God's not going to turn away from us. You say, but wait a minute, we'll turn away from God. Let's find out. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. It's pretty... Conclusive to me. God is not going to forsake you if you're a believer, and you're not going to forsake God because sovereign grace has planted His fear in your heart and you'll never forsake Him. God upholds you. True believers, therefore, cannot lose their salvation. That's because salvation begins with God and it ends with God. It's all of God. Salvation is of the Lord. It's always been the tendency of man to add something to the work of Christ to add something to grace, to add something to mercy, because we want to boast in our salvation. But friends, if your salvation is of you, you can boast. If you're saved because you're just smarter than the rest of the world, and that's why they reject Christ and you don't, smack yourself on the back. You're smart. You are intellectually wiser than they are. But if you're a wretched sinner whose mind is so warped by sin that you would have never have loved Christ lest He opened your mind first, then all glory goes to God. You know why the world rejects Christ and we believe? Because He's left them in their sin and He's mercifully chosen to give us life. That's why. That's why we believe. In John chapter 6, starting in verse 37, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Right? Who comes to Christ? All whom the Father gives to Him. If you're given by the Father to the Son, you'll come. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. God's will for the Son is that He lose none of those who has been given to Him. And therefore, if we were to lose our salvation, if Christ was to lose us, He failed to do the will of God. You don't want to go there, do you? That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. Christ effectually saves those whom the Father has given to Him. You see, friends, if you're a Christian today, you are a love gift 
from the Father to the Son. He gave you to the Son in eternity past. Christ came in time to do the work required for your salvation. And now that He's loved you and chosen you and died for you and worked in your heart, He will not lose you. He will uphold you. Those whom the Father chose, those whom the Son died for, the Spirit effectually keeps saved. That's why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 verse 30 says, we're not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who are of faith to the persevering of the soul. Right? They only have two kinds of people. Those who are of the faith and they persevere to the preserving of the soul. Those who shrink back were never of the faith to begin with. That's why they shrunk back. But true believers are held by God. But that was not the case for these antichrists that John was writing about. These false teachers, these heretics, these Christological deniers, they left the church because they never belonged to the church. They were apostates. And God providentially used their defection to both expose their hypocrisy and unbelief, but also as a means of protecting His church. A means of protecting His church. God even uses the defection of apostates for the good of His church. They leave the church and the church is then freed from their corrupting influence. So that's their defection. Many of them begin in the church. We have to look out for them even in the church. But now how do we overcome them? We know when they appear now. We know where they appear even in the church. But how do we overcome them? How do we avoid being brought into their deception? That's where verses 20 and 21 come into play. Look at verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. You have an anointing from the Holy One. Who's the Holy One? Who's the Holy One? God. Christ. God is holy. Christ is holy. Isaiah 43.3 calls God the Holy One of Israel. Mark 1.24, the demons are afraid of the Son of God and they say, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. In Acts 3.14, Peter's preaching to the Jews about their rejection of Jesus. He says, you rejected the Holy and Righteous One. God is holy. Christ is holy. That is to say, separate from sin, perfectly pure, perfectly righteous. Or as John said back in verse 5 of chapter 1, He is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. God is the Holy One. And we have an anointing from the Holy One. You hear people talk about the anointing often, and I don't know if they really understand what that means. Uh, Do you have the anointing? If you're a Christian, you have the anointing. I can guarantee it. The New Testament talks about the anointing and only with one reference. Listen to what he says. You have an anointing from the Holy One. What's that? What's that? It's the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit, is the anointing. Let me show you this. The word anointing was a reference to a ceremony in the Old Testament where people would have oil smeared on their heads or rubbed on their foreheads. And it was used to ordain, essentially ordain priests and prophets and kings to set them aside to an office that God had appointed them to. For instance, in 1 Samuel 16.13, we see David being anointed and oil is rubbed on his head. And when notice, I want you to notice that even in that passage, the, the anointing is in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. Listen to what 1 Samuel 16.13 says. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. David was the one that God chose to replace Saul as king. And Samuel anointed him as a symbol of that. And when he did that, the Spirit of God came down upon him to empower David to lead the people of God. In Luke 4.18, Luke quotes from Isaiah 61.1. That's a messianic prophecy. And listen to what he says there. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me. What was Jesus anointed with? The Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the Gospel to the poor. The Spirit of God was poured out upon Christ to empower Him in His public ministry. And we know that happened in Matthew chapter 3 at His baptism when the Spirit came down on Him like a dove. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21-22, Paul says this, Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. God anointed you. How did He anoint you? He gave you the Spirit. The Spirit of God has fallen upon you and is dwelling in your heart. That is the anointing. So John says you have an anointing from the Holy One. God has given you the Holy Spirit. Why? The Spirit clearly has many functions, many ministries to fulfill in our lives. According to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, He empowers us for evangelism and witness. According to Titus 3, He regenerates us and renews our hearts. According to... Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, He sanctifies us and makes us holy. But here, in 1 John 2, the purpose is illumination. The purpose is illumination. John says, you have an anointing from the Holy One, therefore you all know. You all know. We know what? We know the truth. We know the truth. Verse 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. We know the truth. That's who we are as Christians. We are a peculiar people who know the truth. The world lies in darkness. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world is deceived. They don't even know what gender is anymore. But we know the truth. Why do we know the truth? Because the anointing, the Holy Spirit, teaches us that truth. That's what he says down in verse 27. Look at verse 27. As for you... The anointing which you receive from Him abides in you. You have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. The anointing, the Holy Spirit, whom we have from Christ, teaches us all things. We know the truth because the Spirit is our divine illuminator, our inward divine teacher. We have the best teacher there is. We have the author of the book living inside of us, giving us understanding. Now this refers to both his work of illumination and his work of regeneration. His work of regeneration. There was a time in your life, whether you remember it or not, some of us remember it more vividly than others, there was a time in your life when you didn't know the truth and didn't love the truth and didn't believe the truth. Maybe you're like me, you grew up professing to believe the truth, but you didn't really love it. You didn't savingly believe it. And then all of a sudden, the lights came on. The truth became glorious. Christ wasn't just this sky guy whom I worshipped because I didn't want to go to hell. He was the glorious Savior. The conquering King whom I loved and worshipped. Why? Because I got smart? Because I read some good books? 
No, because the Spirit of God cut the light on. He opened my heart and enabled me to believe. But then He continues that illuminating teaching work as we study the Scripture under His divine influence. In John 14.26, Jesus told the apostles, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now this was probably a special promise to the apostles that the Spirit would come and aid them in writing the Scripture, but that illuminating teaching ministry of the Spirit continues today in our hearts as He helps us learn the truth. He teaches us all things. You know, we need to realize that. that There's no way that we can know the truth and understand the truth unless it is revealed by God. We are dependent upon revelation. And even more than that, upon that revelation being effectually applied to our minds and hearts by God Himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul said, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. In other words, the natural man, the unconverted man, the unbelieving man, the unregenerate man, the spiritually dead man who is devoid of the Spirit, he cannot understand spiritual truth. cannot understand the Gospel. He cannot understand the Word of God unless he's made a spiritual person. Because spiritual truth is only discerned by spiritual people. Those who have spiritual life and the Spirit reigning in their hearts. But the natural person doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God. Verse 16 says in 2 Corinthians 2, that the believer, however, has the mind of Christ. The believer has the mind of Christ. How? Why? Because we have the Word of Christ. Because we have the Spirit of Christ. And therefore we have the mind of Christ. We have redeemed minds that can thank the thoughts of God after Him because we have the Spirit. And therefore we can and do know spiritual truth. So when false teachers try to come and knock on your door and say, hey, Jesus isn't God, He's Michael the Archangel, we're not buying that. We're not going to buy it. We have the Spirit of God in us that helps us understand the truth. We read the Scripture and think, man, it's so clear. How do they miss this? They miss it because the Spirit is absent in them and they hate God. That's why they miss it. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But by the grace of God, you and I believe. The Spirit has taught us. So in contrast to these antichrists who eventually defect from the faith, who leave the church, who leave the truth, true believers have the anointing. And that's one of the reasons we can't leave the faith. Those who leave the faith, notice the contrast there. He says, but you have an anointing. Right? Let's go back to first grade grammar. Right? But is a contrast word. But you. In contrast to the Antichrist, you have an anointing. They didn't have it. That's why they left. You won't leave because you have it. The Spirit of God is in you. So we'll never abandon the truth. And in the context, we'll see it in just a minute, the truth here has the idea of the truth about Jesus. The truth about Christ. It's not as if we know everything theologically. We, people in this room would disagree on aspects of theology. But we know the truth about the Gospel. We know the truth about Christ. Because the Spirit taught us that in our regeneration in the new birth. The Spirit then is our built-in safeguard that protects us from error and leads us into the truth. 
the truth of the Gospel, the truth of the person and work of Christ, the truth of salvation in Christ, that has come clearly into our hearts at the moment of our salvation. But now, as Christians, we must continuously read the Word of God under the illumination of the Spirit. We need to read dependently. That means when you read your Bible, you know what the first thing you should do is? What should you do? First thing, open the Bible and what do you do? Pray. Pray, God help me. Spirit of God, illumine my mind, give me understanding, cut the lights on, because unless you do, I will never understand that. Give me understanding. And then what do you do as you read the Bible? Pray. What do you do when you finish reading your Bible? Pray. God help me understand it, now help me apply it. We must read the Bible dependently upon the Holy Spirit. He's the one that keeps us from deception and defection. The Spirit of God keeps us. And John's not just writing to refute error here, he's writing to encourage the believers by reminding them that they are the truly anointed children of God. He says in verse 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. No lie. Truth and error are contradictory, internally inconsistent, incompatible, diametrically opposed. If you believe the truth, you do not believe error. And the true believer holds fast to the truth. So that's the defection of Antichrist and the help against Antichrist. The Spirit helps us. But now quickly and fourthly, we consider this question, how do we overcome Antichrist? How do we overcome them? The Spirit and the Word. But then how do we know who they are? So the timing now, the location in the church, the way we overcome them, the Spirit and the Word, but how do we know who they are? That's where John gets to in verses 22 and 23. Here we see the definition of Antichrist. Look at verse 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He uses the word liar and Antichrist synonymously here. The liar, the deceiver, the Antichrist is anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. That's the liar. That's the deceiver. That's the Antichrist. Anyone denying that Jesus is ha Christos, that He's Messiah, that He's the Anointed One, you deny that, you're an Antichrist. If you deny that Jesus is the Anointed One, you don't have the Anointed. If you deny Jesus is the Christ, you're an Antichrist. That's how we know who they are. You want to know who an Antichrist is? Ask people what they believe about Jesus. That tells you all you need to know. They deny the truth about the person and work of Christ. They are anti-Christ. I told you the words used five times here in the New Testament. It's always in John's epistles. It's used three times here. In verse 18, it's used once in reference to the final Antichrist. And it's used once in reference to the many Antichrist. And then it's used again here in verse 22 with reference to the many Antichrist. And here, anyone denying that Jesus is the Christ is the Antichrist. But now go to chapter 4. Chapter 4. You know, if you ask a Jehovah's Witness, is Jesus the Christ? They'll say, yeah, He's the Messiah. They say that. They believe that. Does that mean they're not the Antichrist? Well, there's more to it. Go to chapter 4, verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 3. And for context, I'll start in verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 
And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So now Antichrist is a spirit. It's a spirit of opposition to the true Christ. And the spirit that energizes all Antichrist, including the final one to come, is of course Satan. The spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. But this is a spirit of opposition to the true Christ. And here, it's anyone who denies Jesus as coming in the flesh is an Antichrist. Not only if you deny His Messiah, but if you deny His incarnation and real humanity, you're an Antichrist. Now who in the world would deny that? You see, we live in a culture where people don't really deny the humanity of Christ often. Most skeptics even are willing to concede that you know Jesus was a real man. He existed. So who denies that Jesus came in the flesh? The answer is the heretics that John wrote to refute. The Gnostic heretics in Asia Minor. Remember, they taught Jesus wasn't really God. He was just kind of a God down the chain. An emanation proceeding from God like a lesser God, kind of like an angel. And He didn't really become a man either. He just seemed to be a man. He just appeared to be a man. Like a phantom or a ghost. And John says, anyone who says that... Anyone who denies the reality of Christ's incarnation and humanity, he is an antichrist. So John's really saying, if you deny the truth about Jesus, you're an antichrist. Not just his messiahship, not just his humanity, but even his deity. You deny that Jesus is God in the flesh, you're not a Christian. That's why even though the Jehovah's Witnesses say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Oh yeah, he's the Christ. Is he the God-man? Is he God in the flesh? Oh no, he's not God. He's a God. He's Michael the Archangel. There it is. He's Antichrist. That is an Antichrist. Anyone who denies that is an Antichrist. Then you go to chapter 2. Go to or 2 John, sorry. Go to 2 John, verse 7. 2 John, verse 7. It's one little book to the right there. One little chapter. 2 John, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Many of them. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the Antichrist. That's who the Antichrist is. Anyone denying the truth about Jesus is an Antichrist. Jesus said in John 8.24, Lest you believe I am, you'll die in your sin. If you don't believe Jesus is the great I am, Yahweh God in human flesh, you will die and go to hell. Only those who receive Jesus as He is on His terms, will be saved. Back to chapter 2 now. Verse 22. John says, this is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. If you deny the truth about the Son, you deny the Father. It's a package deal. Reject Christ, you reject God. Reject the Son, you reject the Father. You cannot come to the Father except through the Son. That means Mormons are Antichrist. Muslims don't have God. Jehovah's Witnesses are Antichrist. And even Roman Catholics who believe the dogma of the Roman Catholic Church and deny the headship of Christ on earth, deny salvation by faith, deny the sufficiency of His work, they've denied an essential truth about Jesus and therefore they are Antichrist. One Jesus. Second person of the Trinity. God in human flesh. Any other Jesus is an imposter. A fake. A sham. In verse 23, John states that one more time. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. You reject Christ, 
You reject God. But then in verse 23, he gives the good news. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Those who reject Christ reject God. Those who receive Christ receive God. Brothers and sisters, that's the Christological test. How do you know you're a Christian? Because of what you believe about Jesus. How do you know you're saved? How do you know you're going to escape the wrath of God and the damnation of hell? How do you know you're going to enter the kingdom of God? Because you believe the truth about Jesus. All who receive Him belong to God. That's John's message. That's John's message. The timing of Antichrist, the last hour. It exists now. We need to look out now. The defection of Antichrist, they begin in the church and leave the church. We need to look out even in the church. The help against Antichrist, the Holy Spirit in the Word. The Spirit enables us to know the truth and we need to continue to study the truth under His illumination that we might be kept from error. And finally, the definition of Antichrist, anyone who denies the truth about Jesus is an Antichrist. So there's two kinds of people in the world, friends. Christians and Antichrist. Which are you? Which are you? Do you receive the truth about who Jesus is? If not, you're an Antichrist. You're under the wrath of God. You're headed for judgment. But if so, praise God. Because you can have confidence that you're a Christian and that you belong to God and that His kingdom and the fullness thereof will be your inheritance. True believers believe the truth about Christ. But how do we respond to these antichrists? They try to deceive us. How do we respond to them? We look out for them and we hold fast to the truth. Or in a word, we abide in Christ. And we'll talk more about that next time. But for now, brothers and sisters, hold fast to the truth for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that You have given us a clear word from heaven doesn't speak with ambiguity on the issues of life and death. It speaks with such clarity. And we're so grateful for that. We're thankful for the Savior, fully God, fully man, that He might unite God and man again in one. We know that anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ, anyone who denies Him is coming in the flesh, anyone who denies that He's the Son of God, anyone who denies that He's the Great I Am, anyone who does that is an Antichrist. Anyone who does that will die in their sin. And we get that. And we also know that the only reason we believe is because of Your grace. And now it is our desire that that grace would spread to more and more people to the glory of God. That more, If there's anyone even here this morning who hasn't embraced the truth about Jesus, they're naked and blind and pitiful and damned and headed for judgment. Oh God, that You would open their eyes to the beauty of Jesus and You would effectually draw them into Him by faith that they might be saved. And that You would continue to encourage our hearts as we love our Savior more. That You would hold us fast as we know You will. That You would preserve us. That You would keep us. And You would bring us to everlasting glory. And how we long for that day. And until then we pray. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Come. Amen.